0: approach the teachings of the path of love or of Islam or of Sufism or whatever tradition it is that draws you closer to God in an interactive model. Don't look at it purely and simply as receiving the teaching, but also keep a journal of your responses to the teachings, to the stories. And when something touches your heart, write that down write down what it was and what it made you think because sometimes those momentary realizations are like a lightning bolt in a dark sky and for one minute everything is clear and you see your own self clearly and then it may be gone Welcome to the
1: Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid.
0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sufi Heart podcast. We have taken a little break um, over the last few weeks. I had the great uh, fortune of leading one of our illuminated tours programs to Turkey. But now I'm back and we are back. And uh, I'm very delighted to get to share with you today a beautiful conversation. It's one that I shared with our friends at the 2023 Mystics Summit. And uh, this is part of the Shift Network. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation on Rumi and the path of radical love. So um, I think for some of you who might be looking to have an opportunity to get a sense of Rumi's main teachings and also how he is situated in this wider um, path of love that is really the zenith of Islamic spirituality, this conversation could be a really helpful one. So I'm uh, very grateful to all the friends at, um, at the shift network for this conversation at uh, Taya for having been such a great uh, interviewer and asking such beautiful questions. And I hope that this uh, reaches your heart as well. We hope to be sharing more podcasts coming up in the next bit. And, uh, Wishing you and yours a lovely summer season. Thank you.
1: Hello. I'm Tayama. We have the great pleasure of being here with Sufi teacher and author Omid Safi to explore Rumi and the path of radical love. Dr. Omid Safi is a teacher in the Sufi tradition, a professor at Duke University. And a leading Muslim public intellectual appearing often on major news outlets, including PBS, BBC and CNN. He's a columnist for On Being, has a podcast called Sufi Heart and is the founder of illuminated courses and tours, guiding journeys in Turkey and Morocco and offering online courses open to spiritual seekers of all backgrounds. His books include memories of Muhammad and radical love. Teachings from the Islamic Mystical Tradition. Welcome, Omid. It is such a great joy to
0: be here with you. Thank you so much, Say. It's a pleasure to be with you and with our viewers.
1: Tell us about Rumi and the path of radical love.
0: Well, um, you know, what is there to say about this uh, luminous sage who's life and being and teachings have uh, shaped the path that so many people have journeyed on uh, everywhere from Iran and Turkey to South Asia, Central Asia, and uh, now over the course of the last century in uh, Europe and North America. Uh, To put it very simply, Rumi is um, someone who in his own lifetime was called The offspring of the soul of the prophet. Uh, The offspring of the soul of the prophet. Uh, Really a child of uh, the prophet Muhammad in a spiritual sense. And um, someone who's probably the most clear uh, exemplar of the path of radical love. Um, This bold and uh, beautiful, luminous, tradition that has its roots deep in the Islamic context, um, the Quran and the example, the being of the Prophet Muhammad, but like an ancient tree that opens up a canopy uh, far beyond its roots has also touched the lives of seekers and lovers and dreamers um, from all over the world, from many different cultural contexts, religious contexts. And um, and he keeps on giving, uh, some more than seven hundred years after uh, his earthly, um, but not his heavenly demise. It's
1: such a gift to hear. I'm curious if you'll tell us a bit more about radical love and what radical love means.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, so you know, this word "radical" um, nowadays we tend to use it in the context of. Um, someone who goes to the extreme, someone who's an extremist. And um, of course, closer to our own home, um, you know, sages like Dr. King have described himself as being a radical in the cause of love as well. Um, And there is certainly that element of going to the extremes of love in this tradition, Um, But the word radical originally meant to go back to the heart of something, to go back to the roots of something. And that's really the way in which Rumi uses it. Um, His masterpiece, uh, the Masnavi, which um, has often been called the, the Quran in the Persian language. It's the only text in the whole of Islamic civilization that has ever been um, so directly, so beautifully compared with the Quran. And uh, Rumi begins it by asking each one of us to explore the root of the root of our being, uh, to see what it is that we are tapped into. What is it that grounds us, that sustains us, that nurtures us? And in turn, what is that itself grounded in Nurtured by. Um, And um, so it is, in some ways, a work of love, a path of love that returns us to the root of our being. To go back to that tree metaphor, so often we think about what are the fruits of my life? What is the sweetness that comes out of my life? And Rumi reminds us that we also have to be rooted, we also have to be anchored. That if we want to produce that sweet and succulent fruit of our spiritual life, that we also have to be rooted somewhere, grounded somewhere. And this grounding is not a limitation. It's actually the ways that we make sure that when the inevitable storms of life come, that we have something that allows us to remain grounded.
1: What does Rumi tell us about how to cultivate those roots and that ground?
0: You know, I think in this way, um, Rumi's language is somewhat counterculture to a lot of the works of spirituality that are quite in vogue nowadays. Um, You know, if you were to go to a bookstore and look into the um, spirituality section, you tend to find sections that have titles like self-realization and self-help. And, and Rumi, in some ways, is kind of poking a hole in that balloon because he wants you to really think about what is that self that you're speaking of here. Um, if that self is the way that we conceive of ourselves as this bounded, small self of me as an Omid and you as a Taya, then he's going to say, actually, that self is too small for you, my love. You are a far grander self than this, Um, that you do not end at the tips of your fingers and at the top of your hair. Um, And he wants you to be a part of that ultimate self, that one self, which of course, in theistic traditions, we would call the divine. And so he wants you to be able to rise above this limited self-understanding of us being a bounded self, cut off from other people, cut off from nature, and ultimately cut off from God. Um, And instead, it's an invitation to be the drop that returns to the ocean and to see the wholeness and the oneness uh, that alone exists.
1: Are there particular practices and paths that he would prescribe or invite to guide us toward being the drop, being in the oneness?
0: Uh, He does, and and this tradition does as well. So, of course, in in Rumi's legacy, the great majority of the practices were never written down. Um, It was always understood that what is in the books is more or less um, the turn-by-turn directions that one takes on a journey. But, of course, um, you know, someone can write for you on a piece of paper, travel on this highway for 200 miles and then go right on that road for 40 miles and then go up this dirt road for two miles. And that's very different than arriving at a beautiful vista and climbing a mountain and having a panoramic view or going to the ocean and putting your feet into the water and having the waves wash over you. Uh, And in the Sufi tradition, much like the majority of the spiritual traditions, the idea was that what is in the books always needs to be combined with a living face-to-face, heart-to-heart transmission. Um, And so many of the practices themselves were Um, part of that very intimately personal connection. But what we do know is that Rumi's Path of Love talks about the practice of love, not as a kind of sentiment, not as a kind of emotion, not as a kind of a feeling. Um, We're so accustomed to a context in which People talk about, you know, I love you today, I may not love you tomorrow. Uh, I loved you before, but I fell out of love with you. And there's something quite fickle about the way that we speak about love. Um, And then there's that further issue, which is the way in which um, in speaking about love, we've tended to collapse it and to restrict it almost exclusively to a kind of physical, romantic, maybe even sexual love. Rumi is part of a tradition that they're trying to push back against that and to come up with a very expansive notion of love. So he is going to be emphasizing the ways in which um, there's the love of God, the love of spiritual teachers, the love of prophets and prophetesses, the love of friends in your spiritual community, the love of parents, the love of neighbors, of friends, of yourself, certainly. Um, the love of animals, the love of trees, the love of the wind. Um, and so it, it's expanding and expanding and expanding until it includes everyone and everything. And part of the idea is to move from that isolation of the bounded self to the liberation of an interwoven, organic and whole being in touch with all.
1: Amazing. In your book, Radical Love, you write, love is not merely an emotion, but the unleashing of God on earth. This struck me so deeply. I'm wondering if you'll say more about this and also tell us about uh, what it is, what its essence is.
0: Yeah, thank you. So um, again, remember that, you know, Rumi's real legacy is his being, right? Uh, Of course, he is a peerless poet, probably the most beloved uh, poet in the Eastern half of, of the Muslim majority world. But he's not writing a philosophical treatise on love, right? He's not writing the platonic dialogues. He oftentimes hints at things through stories and through poems and then invites you to be a participant. Uh, So in that, you know, Radical Love book, I had a poem of Rumi's that I've translated, which is called Say Nothing, uh, and this is one in which you know it's about ten lines or so, uh, and I may read that for you if if, if we may. The the rhyming um, pattern of each of the lines is "hich magu," which is say nothing. So that is going to come up again and again. So he starts by saying, um, "I serve that moonlike beauty. Say nothing to me." unless it's about her. Say nothing of sorrow. Speak only words of this treasure. Say nothing. Last night, I became love crazed. And then he's describing this visionary experience of seeing and having a dialogue with love itself, ishq itself, radical love itself. Last night, I became love crazed. Love saw me and said, I've come, don't shout, say nothing. Um, I think any of us who have ever loved and been hurt can relate to this next line. I said, Rumi said, love, I'm afraid of something else. Love said, there is nothing else. Say nothing, right? So this is, God is all that there is. There is nothing other than the divine. And love is speaking in that voice. I'm all that there is. It's all love. It's only ever been love. Say nothing. Let me whisper secrets in your ear. Say nothing. And then Rumi says, oh, wow, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But what, what are you? I said, what a beauty. Are you an angel or a human? Love said not an angel, not a human, say nothing. And then at this point, Rumi's like, well, if you're not an angel, if you're not a human, uh, I said, what is this? Say it. Love said, "Hush. stay like this. Burn a little bit more. Uh, say nothing. And then Rumi says, well, I've ruled out everything else. The only thing that's left is God. I said, my heart, aren't you describing God? Love said, yes, my child, but hush, say nothing. Um, That's more the way he goes about it. You know, it's this poetic, playful invitation of layer by layer unveiling and um, where they say nothing. It's like, okay, this is as far as words can take you. Now, if you want to go further, deeper, higher, you got to taste it. You got to experience it. Um, And in some of the writings of the love tradition that comes around Rumi, the analogy that they always use is that, you know, if somebody were to write on a board, um, H-O-N-E-Y, you probably wouldn't go up to it and lick the board. Um, And I tend to hesitate making sharp distinctions between religion and spirituality, because that's a very modern division. Historically, all of our spiritual and mystical traditions were totally immersed in our religious traditions. Today, of course, because of all the Um, trauma and, frankly, dryness of many of our religious traditions, many of us want to keep exploring the spiritual outside of conventionally religious understandings, and that's understandable. Um, And, you know, what some of these teachers say is that what conventional religiosity is, is that somebody, a prophet, a sage, a teacher, uh brings a bowl of honey in front of you and holds it up and says look at this look at how golden and amber this honey is and they might even put their own finger in that bowl of honey and then put it in their own mouth and say mm 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 you wouldn't believe how sweet this is and everyone who's watching says i do testify that he tasted the honey And he says that the honey is real sweet. But the spiritual path is that we also come to taste God for ourselves. And so it would actually be that we discover our own bowl of honey. And we lift up that bowl and we put our own finger in our own bowl of honey and put it in our own mouth. And then we say, I do declare that with my own tongue, I have tasted my own honey And it is as sweet as what he said. Um, And of course, when the finger with the honey is in your mouth, then your mouth is closed. So hush, say nothing. At that point, there might not even be the need to speak anymore or to try to persuade anybody else or to post it on Instagram. It's just enough to have The mouth closed and the eyes closed, and to savor that sweetness.
1: Yes, to savoring the sweetness. I'm curious what guidance you have for folks who are familiar with perhaps watching others taste the honey and to be in witness and testimony there, but are really seeking and yearning for their own bowl of honey, for their own access, finding those sweet spots. What guidance? do you have for folks seeking to taste that more?
0: Thank you. Um, well, you know, the guidance is not what, what I would have. It's the beautiful words and teachings that Rumi and the other sages and the prophets and prophetesses have, have brought for us. Um, you know, towards the end of his life, when Rumi is about to pass on from this realm, uh, of course, everybody around him is in tears as they were in tears towards the end of uh, the Prophet Muhammad's life. What do we do when this gate to heaven is closed? And um, Rumi offered them one very practical piece of advice, which he said, um, when I'm gone, don't look for me in the soil of this place. Now, mind you, um, I have the privilege of taking people to that soil. And I've been going there for some 30 years and I've had maybe a thousand people come with me. Um, so we love to go into that place. It's a sacred place. It's one of those places where the boundary between this world and the unseen realm becomes thin, thin and all but invisible. Um, but Rumi says, I'm not in this soil. If you want to find me, if you want to find your own bowl of honey and to have your honey in your own mouth. Think about my teachings, any story, any practice, any poem, open it up and taste the joy that you had when you came across it. I am inside of that joy. I am inside of that joy. And I think that's really the practice for someone who wants to have their own bowl of honey, is approach the teachings of the path of love or of Islam or of Sufism or whatever tradition it is that draws you closer to God. In an interactive model, don't look at it purely and simply as receiving the teaching. But also keep a journal of your responses to the teachings, to the stories. And when something touches your heart, write that down and write down what it was and what it made you think, because sometimes those momentary realizations are like a lightning bolt in a dark sky. And for one minute, everything is clear and you see your own self clearly and then it may be gone. And sometimes keeping a track, a journal, a diary of our interactions with these teachings reminds us that, oh, we've had experiences. We've been given these tastes of honey. And, um, and we will again, inshallah.
1: And we will again, inshallah. inshallah. there's a practice that I've heard you speak of that is very dear to my heart of kissing the cup. I'm wondering if you'll speak to that.
0: Yeah, well, you know, here I am holding up a glass of water. And uh, this is something from Molana Rumi's tradition, that whenever he would uh, go to drink, he would take the glass and he would kiss it before he would start drinking. And, um, you know, people, uh, they sort of looked at him funny as they would today. Uh, Why don't you just drink from the glass? Why are you kissing it? And his response was always the same, because it has a soul. It has a life force. It has a John, as we say. In the Eastern tradition, Turkish, Persian, Urdu, uh, it would be rude uh for you and I just to call each other by a first name. I am Omidjan and you're Teajan, and the audience members are something John, and the John is the soul. It's I don't just see you, I aspire to see your soul and your life force and that. You are as dear to me as my own life force. I live through this connection. And in English, we speak of um, some beings having souls, animals and humans, maybe plants, and then everything else being inanimate, soulless, soulless. But for the mystics, nothing is soulless. Everything is alive. Everything sings. And so Rumi at one point has this line in the Masnavi where he says, think of the elements, right? The earth, the soil, the water, fire, and air. He says, to you, they appear dead, but to God, they are alive. They're living. Um, so God is the al the living one, life itself. And, That divine life is coursing through, moving through, flowing through all. And so the kissing of a little glass, um, the kissing of each other's hands, of cheeks, of embracing of the friends, kissing of the earth, these are all reminders that there's no such thing as an inanimate object, that there is a soul that connects us all. There's a life force that is derived from God as the living.
1: So beautiful. Thank you for this. The life force derived from God as the living. It reminds me too of something I read in your work. Radical love is not in God, but as God. And just that that strikes me so deeply.
0: Yeah, thank you. And, you know, this uh, before the time of Mulan Rumi and some of these teachers of radical love, people used to talk about how, you know, there's the love that we as mere humans share with each other. And this is like the alphabet, that we have to master this in order to really get to love the one. And in Rumi's tradition, of course, you know, he's mindful that sometimes we just fall in love with somebody's pretty face. And, and he says, well, if you, what you fall in love with is just a pretty face, the face may not always be pretty. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, as a young man, I used to have hair down to my shoulders, and today I don't. So if what that person loved in me was the long hair down to the shoulders, I don't have that to offer anymore. But if they can see the John, if they can see the soul, then everything else becomes like the season. Um, and if you have a garden, that's a really great metaphor. My wife is a gardener. Um, and how beautiful it is that, you know, in the springtime and we're towards the process of wrapping up spring here where, where we live, but there's been lots of blossoms and lots of fruit on some of the trees, not quite yet ripe, but you see them coming and the green of the leaves is still that very fresh vibrant green. And probably in another month or so, many of those blossoms are going to turn into fruit and the strawberries and the blueberries that we have in our yard are going to be ripe and sweet for the picking. And then when autumn comes, many of the trees around here are going to drop their leaves. And those vibrant, rich orange and gold and red and brown colors are going to reveal themselves. They've always been there. They're there right now. But sometimes when what we think of as life falls, that's the name of the season, then the vibrant colors beneath get to show themselves. And then the life of the plant returns down to the roots of the tree and the plants. They're not dead, But there's been a time for flourishing, for manifesting, and there's a time to return to the roots. And in the winter season, you don't walk up to the trees in your garden and say, I hate you. (laughs) It is, no, this is the season for you to rest, for repose, for recovery. And how beautiful would it be if we could love each other like that, right? That there's a time for the exuberance of youth, and the freshness of life, and then maybe there's a time to be fruitful and at the peak of productivity, and then, you know, maybe someone like me in the autumn season of life where certain colors in the beard and in the hair are starting to show themselves, Uh, and then maybe even in another few years, if we're given that kind of a life, you get to the winter season of life where you're a little bit more bent over where your life has returned down to the roots, but then you've also seen things and tasted things. So when you are sharing your experiences and you're speaking of joy and heartache and patience and beauty, these are not abstract concepts. These are, these are honeys that you have tasted and your words are pregnant with the lessons that you have lived um, and to love each other through the seasons of life in that same way.
1: Mm, This is so beautiful, Omijan. I'm curious if you might share a bit for those of us who want to kiss the cup, want to perceive the soul in all, want to be more unabashed and radical in our loving presence in the world. What might Rumi offer to encourage us to be bold in that way?
0: Beautiful. You know, I think uh, one of the, we live in such a curious age. Um, On one hand, you can turn on your phone or you can open up a laptop and you can be exposed to beautiful spiritual teachings from all over the world, from so many centuries. Um, This is kind of a new thing for us humans. On the other hand, um, those very same devices can also uh, flood us with endless tantalizing impressions and sensations you know, you can spend hours just doing this on Instagram. You will never get to the bottom, right? It's, there's no point at which Instagram is ever going to say, that's it, Ty, you got me. You saw it all. You saw all the posts. I have nothing. It's just going to keep coming and keep coming. And, you know, the nowadays, of course, like, You and I have a conversation, and if I haven't changed the privacy setting on my phone, the next day I'm going to start to see advertising of all that stuff on my phone, like someone's always listening. What else can you buy? And the more you buy, maybe you'll get closer to happiness, right? Um, So we have to really cultivate the wisdom of knowing how to use this extraordinary technology that we have. and. one of the things that I that is clear to me, and I think anybody who loves Rumi's tradition, is that we have more technologies to connect with one another than maybe ever before. We can write letters, we can pick up the phone, we can FaceTime, we can Instagram, we can do Twitter, we can do Facebook, TikTok, whatever. And at the same time, more and more and more people experience their life as being overwhelmed by a kind of cosmic loneliness. Uh, And depending on where you live, and depending on the community that you're a part of, many people would be really hard-pressed to tell you anything about the family two or three doors down from them. Um, So it's a strange world where some Facebook friend to you, or some Instagram influencer that you follow, might feel very intimate to you. But you might not really have picked up the phone and talked to your mother or your grandmother or a sibling or a child or a cousin um, beyond the casual, hey, how are you, how are the kids doing, what's going on? Um, we have so many ways of connecting to one another, and in some ways, we have less to say to one another. So I think these are the ways in which, you know, in this tradition, yes, there are practices for prayer. Yes, there are practices for dhikr, for chanting and invoking the presence of God. But a lot of the most basic things are also being present with one another. And, um, you know, one of the simple things that uh, I wrote some some years ago is in traditional Muslim culture, we did not ask one another, how are you doing? Um, You would ask each other, how is the state of your heart in this breath? That was the meaning of this word hal, Hall is that transient state of the heart. Um, it's when you and I would see each other, I wouldn't ask you, what's on your to-do list? How many things do you have in your inbox? It was, I recognize that the heart is alive, that the heart is dynamic, and there are as many thoughts and impressions that go through your heart as there are clouds that pass through a sky. Um, How is your heart doing right now, my friend? And what would it mean if we ask that with intention, with presence, not as a way of prying or forcing a kind of intimacy that is not warranted, but as the fruit of our friendship, and to ask it, to offer it, and then to pause, to create this opening in which your friend has the space to look within themselves and to say wow how how is my heart doing right now I haven't thought about my heart all day um and then they share something and then they say and how's your heart right so in that kind of a dynamic you know you, we're not none of us are we're not the guru We're not the healer. We're not the fixer. Um, We are mirrors. And that's what, you know, Rumi talks about his own friendship with Shams, uh, his teacher, that they're like two mirrors facing each other. Anytime you have two mirrors and you step between them, you see your reflection go out to infinity. And we have that opportunity every time we come across one another. Um, and that's really the gift that um, this tradition, which is based on presence, on being present with the whole of what we are. You know, it's for that reason why, of course, no one called him Rumi in his lifetime. Um, you know, he's, he was usually just called Molana, Mevlana in Turkish. Um our teacher, our master, our protective friend. And his devotees called him Hazrat, Hazrat Molana. And Hazrat just means presence. This is someone who is present to himself, present to herself. And it's that honorific that we put before the name of all the prophets. Hazrat Muhammad, Hazrat Jesus, Hazrat Moses, Hazrat Abraham, Hazrat Molana, And... Um, You know, Rumi writes 60,000 lines of poetry, many of them very little in terms of autobiographical detail. He's got this one line that the great, great scholar of Sufism, Anne-Marie Schimmel, says, this might be the most autobiographical thing he ever says. Um, And he says, I prayed so often that my whole being has become a prayer Every time somebody sees me, they start to pray, right? Not that they start praying to me. They start to pray to God because they see what prayer looks like. I think those are the kind of friends we got to look for in life. It's somebody that when you see them, you know that love is real, beauty is real, prayer is real, presence is real, And it's not that they make you feel better about yourself or worse about yourself. It's it's kind of like, you know, that old scene, if you're of a certain age, uh, from the When Harry Met Sally movie, like, I'll have what she's having. Uh, I, I want to have the presence that he's having. I want to figure out how to live like that. Um, that's a gift that beings like Rumi and these sages from this tradition continue to offer us.
1: Mm. It's such a gift to hear you speaking of seeking ones in our life who make presence real, make love real, make God real, as I've heard and read in your teachings. I'm curious, as you reference the context of Maulana in his life, what changes for those who are very familiar with reading Rumi out of context, perhaps in translation, what changes when we connect the dots? If we're if we're studying or um being in connection with Rumi and with Mavlana's work um in its context?
0: That's a wonderful question. Um So I'll give you one example. Um you know, there's that wonderful line of, um, of Rumi's poetry that my dear friend Coleman Barks has translated so beautifully. Um, something along the lines of, um, there's thousands of ways to bow down and kiss the ground, right? Uh, it's a beautiful line. It's magnificent. And I've been with him in poetry and Sufi festivals with like 2,000 people. Uh, and, and he starts it and it's like a black church call and response. Like 2,000 people are speaking the poem back to him because they've based their whole life on there's thousands of ways to bow down and bend down and kiss the ground. And how much more concrete is it if we realize that when Rumi wrote that poem in Persian, the language that he was using was actually about the physical postures of the five times a day prayers, right? So it's not the generic bow down and kiss the ground, it's the prostration of the prayer and the putting your forehead and putting it on the soil from which we all come from and to which we will someday return in prayer. And then to think that there's hundreds of ways of prayer, right? So I think what it does is that it enriches and deepens and adds that poetic and symbolic level to our religious tradition. Um, So... You know, I think in terms of a lot of my own teaching, um, yes, on one hand, I think these teachings of love are really meant for the whole of humanity. Uh, we can all benefit from them, regardless of what background we come from. And so many of us complain about why is it that um, the Islam that we see around us today doesn't have the mercy? of the prophet Muhammad or that the Christianity that we see of today doesn't seem like it has the love of Jesus and that the Judaism that we see today doesn't seem to have the liberation that we saw in Moses and the Hinduism that we see today doesn't seem to have the rich imagination and the mythology of classical Hindu traditions. You know, part of that is because we have taken the Rumis of the world out of our religious tradition. When was the last time any of us went to a mosque in which we heard Rumi poetry being a part of Friday sermons? Uh, that's an issue. That's a problem. So I think what I try to do in this short few years I have on this earth is to walk these um, with these two feet, with these fly with these two wings. On one hand, explore these love teachings and to share them with people regardless of their faith background, their language, their their culture. Because I do think these are gifts for the whole of humanity on one hand, with one wing. And on the other hand, uh, for those of us who continue to be rooted and grounded and anchored in a particular faith tradition, to enliven it. Uh, to bring that sweetness back to the roots um, so that, inshallah, those, after the winter season, (laughs) there can be another spring and another summer uh, coming, maybe after we're gone.
1: It's such a gift to receive this reminder and invitation, this call to sweeten the roots. And it's such a gift to receive the ways that you sweeten the roots through. Through your teachings and your your honoring of Mevlana and the way that you do, I'm curious if you'll share another poem with us here.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, see, um, what we might have. So um, there are um, a couple of things that I've translated in this uh, in this book. And, um, you know, there's a few poems from that um, wonderful, wonderful uh, early female Sufi, Rabia, um, um, the most famous of the mystic uh, female giants of early Islam. And um, I've always loved this one very much. Uh, This was the prayer that uh, people have prayed for about a thousand years. And so she says, uh, oh, Lord, uh, if I worship you for fear of hell, burn me in that hell. If I worship you hoping for paradise, make it forbidden for me. But if I worship you only for your own sake, do not withhold from me your everlasting beauty. Do not withhold from me your everlasting beauty. Um, And Rumi, of course, grew up with the teachings of women like Rabia. Um, You know, there's a Rabia's walking one day past. We're not told if it's a mosque or a church, um, and uh, the guy is offering a sermon, and uh, you know he's. Paraphrasing the teachings that we see in the Gospels from Jesus: um, "Knock and it shall be opened unto you; ask and it shall be granted unto you." So, Rabia sticks her head in. She goes, "What are you saying?" Um, and you know, this preacher is is quite upset that this woman, this woman, has interrupted his majestic sermon. And so he said, "Woman, I said, knock." Know your place, knock, and then the door shall be opened unto you. And she says, fool, Uh, the door's never been closed. The door to God has never been closed. And Rumi grows up with this. And of course, in this tradition, if you receive something beautiful from someone, you receive it and then you give it back. So there's this playfulness of a back and forth. And so Rumi comes up with a poem as a response to Rabia. And he says, my friend, you have been knocking and knocking and knocking at God's door for your whole life. Friend, you're knocking from the inside. Right? You're already within God. And you keep knocking and knocking, asking why the door doesn't open. I think these are really just eternal gifts from Rabia, from Rumi, from all of these sages. And sometimes one poem can save a life. And you go from that sense of loneliness and isolation and meaninglessness to all of a sudden realizing that you are the fish in the ocean of God. And the reason that you have not seen the ocean is because there is nothing other than the ocean. And you've been in the ocean all along. And when we get it, and when through the grace of God and the prophet and these sages, we say, right, I have gills because I'm a creature of the ocean. I don't see the ocean because I'm in the ocean. Um, that's when love becomes real and friendship becomes real and God becomes real. And that's what we're all striving for.
1: That is what we're all striving for. Thank you so much for the blessing of this teaching, Omidjan. For the folks tuning in who would love to connect more deeply with your work, where can they find you? Tell us about your offerings.
0: Um, well, um, the, the most helpful thing I can tell them is go to a forest. Go to a mountaintop, go to a beach, put your feet in a stream, uh, sense the joy that washes over you and savor that taste and return to it. uh, Whatever it is, if it's yoga, if it's prayer, if it's journaling, if it's salat and namaz, find out what it is that feeds your soul and do it and do it and do it again until it becomes you. And until when everybody who sees you. starts to pray and starts to look for their own mountain. That honestly is the most helpful thing I can tell them. Um, If they're looking for more concrete things, there's that book, Radical Love, that you kindly mentioned. Um, And we have some online courses and community gatherings through Illuminated Courses, which is online. And uh, every year we're blessed to take some friends to Turkey, to Morocco, and for some friends to Mecca and Medina. And uh, they would be welcome to join us on those as well.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much for these invitations and all that you've shared. Will you close us with a blessing, a prayer, or a poem?
0: Yes, inshallah. Let me um, get this text because this is very, very dear to my heart. So this is the, um, a poem of blessing from an Indian Sufi, uh, Hazrat Anayat Khan, who is really in many ways the um, continuation of Rumi's teachings for today. Uh, he is the first Sufi that we know of to have come to Europe and North America. There were ones before him uh, on slave ships. But um, their record uh, has been largely wiped away. Um, but Hazrat Khan is the first one that, that we know of. So, um, and, and he wrote his writings in English. So I'll, I'll read this. Bismillah uh, rahim Praise be to thee, most supreme God, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-pervading, the only being. Take us in Thy parental arms. Raise us from the denseness of the earth. Thy beauty do we worship. To Thee do we give willing surrender. Most merciful and compassionate God, the idealized Lord, of the whole humanity. Thee only do we worship, and toward Thee alone we aspire. Open our hearts towards Thy beauty. Illuminate our souls with divine light. O Thou, the perfection of love, harmony, and beauty all-powerful creator, sustainer, judge, and forgiver of our shortcomings. Lord God of the East and the West, of the worlds above and below, of the seen and unseen beings, pour upon us thy love and thy light, Give sustenance to our bodies, hearts, and souls. Use us for the purpose that thy wisdom chooseth. And guide us on the path of thine own goodness. Draw us closer to thee every moment of our life until in us be reflected thy grace, thy glory, Thy wisdom, thy joy, and thy peace. Ameen.
1: Ameen. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much for this all all that you've shared here, Ameen.
0: Thank you for the journey and the companionship, my friend. Bir de